0: If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Diary elections from the pandemic year. March 2020 to March 2021 By Alan Bennett 1st of March Thanks to arthritis, I'm now much less mobile than I was. Gone are the days when I could jump on my bike to pop down to the shops, so static semi-isolation is scarcely a hardship or even a disruption of my routine. Himself no slouch when it came to work, George Steiner once asked a Soviet dissident how he got through so much. House arrest, Steiner, house arrest. Alas, so far as work is concerned, I haven't yet noticed much difference. The only medical scourge I've had any experience of is TB, or consumption as it was called then. The Sherwoods, a family that lived next door to us in Armley Leeds, in the 1940s, lost their youngest son to TB, which then infected his father, who also died. Unsurprisingly, this left my mother perpetually anxious lest we catch it. Mrs Sherwood was a good cook and often invited my brother and me to sample her dishes, which we were strictly forbidden to do. On one occasion, though, I succumbed, as Yorkshire pudding and foolishly saying so at home, it was as if I'd signed my own death warrant. TB was to blame for other more bizarre prohibitions. We were never allowed to wear open necked shirts, for instance, lest the cold goatee a chest. Sharing a bottle of pop with other boys was another death trap, as was not wearing a vest or drinking unaired water. TB was pretty well eradicated or controlled long before my mother's death, but she never ceased to think of it as the killer it had been in her youth. Always one to diddle her hands under the tap, she would have found the precautions against the coronavirus only common sense. 18th of March The York Theatre Royal's tour of the habit of art, the play about Auden and Britain, which did well last year and was due to be revived for a festival in New York, has had to be cancelled. I write to the cast apologising and saying that one person who would not be washing his hands every five minutes is W. H. Auden. 20th of March With Rupert now working from home, My life is much easier, as I get regular cups of tea and a lovely hot lunch. 24th of March Photo in the Guardian of a homemade sign at the entrance to Malham village, telling, or rather entreating, the hordes of tourists to go home. In our village, 20 miles or so away, the car park is full and the place far busier than on a normal Sunday. So far from social distancing, some of the visitors practically link arms. Still, it makes a change from brawling over toilet rolls. 26th of March Around 6, Nick Heitner rings, highly excited. Piers Wenger, controller of BBC Drama, has just rung him, saying that Though current restrictions make mounting any TV programme difficult, he thinks it may be possible to do a new version of the Talking Heads monologue from 1988. Nick is ringing me, unnecessarily, for my permission. He comes round later, and we thrash out some of the details in a conversation with him standing on the other side of the street. 10th of April, Good Friday. We have agreed that the cast and crew in the Talking Heads remount should do so for a token fee, with any profits to be given to the NHS. I'm somewhat staggered to find that this amounts to a million pounds, probably more. It's no skin off my nose, as I never expected the programmes to be repeated. But the financial sacrifice for some of the cast and crew will not just be notional. "'Astonishing though it is, it passes without notice. "'Good Friday, when this year Pontius Pilate "'is not the only one washing his hands. "'16th of April, a card from Tom King "'with news of the tattoo of me that he had put on his arm, "'pictured in the diary published in the LRB of 3rd of January 2019.' The tattoo remains popular, though, bizarrely, one person thought it was of Henry Kissinger. It also makes for an amusing conversation during intercourse. This suggests the intercourse might be less than fervent. My name in itself, something of a detumescent. 28th of April The most one can hope from a reader is that he or she should think Here is somebody who knows what it is like to be me. It's not what E.M. Forster meant by only connect, but it's what I mean. These days, only connect means bumping elbows. 7th of May. Sometime in the afternoon, Alex Jennings and his wife Leslie call by and we have a socially distanced chat on the doorstep, me sitting on a stool Rupert standing behind me. They bring me a birthday present, as yet unopened, having just taken something similar to Nick Heitner, whose birthday is today. Mine is on Saturday, and Alex's the day after, which is perhaps why we all get on so well. All Taurians, some would say. Nick rings later with a progress report on Talking Heads, He's full of praise for the helpfulness of the East Enders technicians on the set of which, at Elstree, the monologues are being filmed. Fifteenth of May. I've never been that fond of my hands. Now, much washed as we are told, they scarcely bear looking at—shiny, veinous, and as transparent as an anatomical illustration. Far from the matte, solid, sensible instruments one has always hankered after. More artistic, I suppose. An old lady's hands, lying idle in a lap somewhere. 1st of June. Coming to the end of English Pastoral, James Rebank's second volume. It's harder to read than A Shepherd's Life with the central section about the onset of factory farming not easy to take. Thankfully, though, in his own life at any rate, the tide turns and Rebanks regains his grip on traditional farming and with it offers some hope, without it being fine writing, as so much pastoral writing is. What it is, though it's self-serving to say so, is a commentary on the last speech from 40 years on. Were we closer to the ground as children, or is the grass emptier now? 20th of June When, from 1944 to forty five we lived in Guildford, we often ate, or had to eat, the truth of it, in the British restaurant there. This was a government canteen with pretty basic self-service school dinner-type food. As a child, I found eating in public a delicate area, and I was always embarrassed when my parents patronised the place, though it was presumably all they could afford. It didn't take much to embarrass me, but I was still at primary school, whereas my brother was at Guildford Grammar School, then as now quite a posh school so with more reason to be self-conscious than me. Guildford was not short on cafes, the nicest, and in no way embarrassing, the Corona down the high street, with a revolving drum of coffee beans in the window, and an intoxicating aroma. Another was the good oven, where the scones were a particular favourite. In Leeds there would always have been a dietary supplement of fish and chips, And even in Guildford there were fish and chip shops, but they used oil, not the beef dripping on which we'd been brought up, and to us oil smelt disgusting, and was yet another score on which, down south, proved a disappointment. 10th of July Isolation, such as it is, is beginning to rob me of speech. I had to call the optician today to explain how I'd broken the strut of my glasses and found myself so much at a loss, Rupert had to take over. He didn't find this at all strange. I do. 17th of July. I've watched the recordings of the Talking Heads monologues, but because of social distancing, I've not been able to attend rehearsals or meet the performers or the directors. I send them thank-you notes and good wishes, and today comes a lovely card from Martin Freeman, whom I don't know, but who is so good about the monologue he did, a chip in the sugar, that I want to write back and thank him, thus making it like an extract from a lady of letters, a thank-you letter for a thank-you letter. I'm so pleased with it, I carry Martin's card about with me in my pocket, like a hand-warmer. 24th of July. A piece in the TLS in which Mary Beard re reads and reassesses Fergus Miller's The Emperor in the Roman World, 1977. A stocky, heavy headed young man, I used to see him at Oxford, seemingly always on his way back from squash. I knew at the time he was formidably clever, and from a distance, with me it was always from a distance fancied him rotten. On reflection, it was partly his name I found so glamorous, but at this age, and with him dead, I think I'm allowed to say that. Though I must have been envious, because half a lifetime later, I know that when Mary Beard offers some criticism of his hit volume, I'm not entirely displeased. He looked not unlike the Welsh actor, Johan Griffith. 3rd of August I never thought I'd say it but I wish we had a stair lift as famously advertised by Thora Heard I come downstairs in the morning and don't go back until I go up for my bath before supper All this has happened since I had to give up using my bike Stairs are painful and slow My bones audibly grinding with my right leg and ankle worse than my left I'm not sure if exercise makes it better or worse, though I can only just make it round the block every evening. We won't ever get a stair lift for aesthetic reasons, but how long I will be able to continue walking is an open question, an oppressing one. 4th of August. Rupert goes upstairs to do his Pilates on Zoom. His teacher is round the corner but she's currently with her husband in Canada. Still, up he goes in his T-shirt and shorts, and it's quite strenuous and makes no difference that she's on the other side of the world. 13th of August. Big rows over A-levels. I'm not sure if I would have benefited if my exam results had been based on coursework. I was a good examinee, but not much of a stare in class. I needed an occasion before I could perform and even put on my suit for A-levels or the higher school certificate as it was then. It was the same at university, and I was shown my college's assessment of me a few years ago. The records are kept in the Bodleian, and pretty ordinary it was. When it came to the test in final schools, I managed to suggest I was cleverer than I was, and had these untapped resources, which only lack of time prevented me from displaying. It was all part of showing off, which I could do right from elementary school. 16th of August. Every evening around 8, we walk round the block, literally a three-minute walk. What in normal circumstances is one of Rupert's good habits is to pick up any stray scraps of paper and put them in the bin. And this evening, on the corner of Regent's Park Road, he retrieves a bit of paper, which turns out to be a previously used tissue. He is appalled, and we hasten home so that he can bin it and wash his hands. What we have not realised is that it's Thursday, and our progress is hindered by a fusillade of clapping and pan-banging from the neighbours out on the balconies in celebration of the NHS. Rupert can clap, even with the noxious tissue, but I can't, as I need to hold on to my walking stick. It also appears that with me walking in the road, I appear to be acknowledging the applause, and even generating it. I try to disavow this by feebly smiling and shaking my head, But this just looks like modesty. It's an absurd and inexplicable incident. Eighth of September. One phone call today. A woman inquiring if I've made arrangements for my funeral yet. At least it isn't a recorded voice. Fourteenth of September, Yorkshire. The big sadness today is finding that Jane Manser's second-hand bookshop, just off Settle Marketplace, has closed, and not for the duration of Covid, but for good. It was a lovely shop, full of unexpected treasures, and absurdly cheap. Jane, whose shop it was, was a friend to the lonely and the eccentric, being herself very devout, though the main influence this had on the stock was the size of the theology section. Some books she wouldn't stock. I once asked her to look out for me any copy of Moby Dick, only to find it was on her blacklist due to its subject. There were exotic finds. A privately printed edition of The Unquiet Grave, for instance, though nothing quite so unexpected as a presentation copy of some art book signed by Anthony Blunt that had turned up round the corner in age concern. 15th of September. Much missed these shameful days is Tom Bingham, the ex Lord Chief Justice and legal philosopher, who would have had Johnson scuttling for cover. Both from Balliol, one a credit to the college, the other not. I don't relish the dilemma of the fellows of Balliol, when they called on to dole out the Prime Minister's honorary fellowship. At least when it comes to his honorary degree from the university, there's a precedent for a refusal, as that was one of the few slights which pierced Mrs Thatcher's hide. 20th of September Sent by her biographer, Jasper Rees, a letter I wrote to Victoria Wood, turning down a part in her comedy series, I can't face playing any more men with justice. I don't mean I want to play Bert Reynolds' parts, only somewhere between him and Richard Wattis, say. Those are the parameters. She was a great woman. Her performance of Let's Do It at the Albert Hall, the stuff of legend. I just hope Noel Card was still around to see it. I first met her almost epically in Sainsbury's in Lancaster, at the avocado counter. Her dinner ladies was often sentimental, but she caught in the part of the handyman played by Duncan Preston the idiom of an old-fashioned working-class man, elaborate, literate and language-loving, which is or was more typical of the North than the more clichéd dialect-rich versions. 25th of September I am not going to affect the livery of the time's prudery. From a poem by Iris Thomas. 3rd of October. Reading a piece on universities in the TLS brings back Richard Pears, whose last course of lectures I went to at Oxford in 1957. He was plainly dying, lecturing from a wheelchair and barely audible. With another Don turning over the pages of his text. The subject would have been topical today the influence of the sugar interest on English politics, not recounted then as it would be now in a humanitarian anti slavery tone, but purely factually and without reproof. I did not know this at the time, but Pears had had something of a Damascene conversion having been as an undergraduate one of the circle around Evelyn War before turning his back on frivolity for academic life. But the spectacle, and it was a spectacle, of someone giving his last breath to the study of history, taught me more than any of the tutorials and lectures that i had had at Oxford and which in the last term before schools were about to come to an end. 9th of October Around ten this morning the doorbell goes, just when I'm in the passage. Often these days I don't get there in time. It's an out-of-work boy, not with the characteristic bag, but just himself. He keeps well back, as I do, but immediately embarks on his spiel, that he's from Middlesbrough and on an employment scheme, and do I want anything in the way of dusters or dishcloths. Such callers are familiar, or were until lockdown, and we've long been oversupplied. I generally get away with contributing a pound or two, though this is not easy, as it provokes another spiel about him not wanting charity, and that he's actually selling something. Goods need to change hands. But finding someone on my doorstep who is sharing my airspace, and with coins themselves agents of infection, I don't even attempt to buy him off, and hear myself saying, absurdly, I'm sorry, but we have the virus. A lie which the boy meekly accepts, turning away before I even get the door closed. It is abject acceptance that stays with me. Not the first rejection he will have had this morning, though maybe none so specific. 22nd of October I don't always understand the poems in the LRB or new poems generally and what catches my eye in the poem John's and Sam's by Steve Ely is not the poem itself but its footnote explaining that John and Samuel Smith's breweries are located on the river wharf near Tadcaster upstream from the former eel fishery of Ullaskulf. It's Oluscalf I recognise I know Ullaskalp, or did. I have been fishing there. It was a long time ago, nearly 80 years in fact, but the boredom of the experience is fresh as ever. My father took no interest in sport. Living at one point a stone's throw from Headingley Cricket Ground, Dad never encouraged my brother or me to go to a match and never ventured there himself. Sport apart, though, Dad was subject to crazies. A butcher for the co-op, with Sunday his only day off, he would indulge in various pastimes. There was fretwork when he perched by the fire at his little hobby's fretwork machine, turning out toys, which he sold for a few much-needed pounds down County Arcade in Leeds. There was homemade herb beer, non-alcoholic but highly explosive, which regularly demolished the scullery. Above all, there was the violin, which it's unfair to call a craze, as he was self-taught and played well all his life. And then, hopelessly, there was Bullets, a literary competition in the weekly John Bull, at which he never won a penny. And briefly, there was Fishing. Fishing is generally thought of as a solitary pursuit. It's one of its attractions but not in the Bennett family. If Dad was going fishing, we all had to go, my brother and me, and in a brief interruption to her own craze of lampshade-making, my mother. On Sundays we often went hiking, though we never called it that, and it was far from plain from the way we were dressed, my brother and me in our school caps, Mam in her swagger coat, and Dad in his other suit, i.e., not the one with his greasy shop trousers. We never joined in, got the gear, looked the part, and so it was with fishing. Even so, we had no choice but to join with what nowadays would be called the fishing community and catch the fishing train from Leeds City Station first thing on Sunday morning. Like all trains during the war, this was 1941, it was packed. My brother remembering him and me being pulled aboard while the train was still sliding into the platform. Among the seasoned and seasonably clad fishermen, the Bennett family must have stood out, ma'am especially, as there were very few female fishers. She was particularly unhappy, my brother remembers, because with the luggage racks crammed with fishing tackle, maggots drizzled down on the anglers' indifferent heads. Our Sunday outings weren't purely scenic. In summer, we picked bilberries on Ilklymoor, in the autumn, blackberries at East Keswick, and very occasionally, and more gingerly, mushrooms. In theory, fishing could have been added to this productive list, but not the way Dad did it, and certainly not at his chosen location at Ullaskalf. The wharf is a pretty river, and in its upper reaches at Burnsell, say, or Bolton Abbey, spectacularly so. Lower down, though, south of Harewood, in the flatlands of East Yorkshire, it drifts between muddy banks and rhubarb fields and is a pretty dismal waterway. But then, so is Leeds' local river, the Aire. No fish there either, but at least there was ghost Abbey. At all the scale, there was nothing and on the rare occasions when Dad managed to cast his line as far as the middle of the river, his bait was spurned by the few fish which infested its murky depths. On the three or four trips we made, there was never a solitary bite. Meanwhile, Mam sat glumly with her woman's own while my brother and I read our comics, the float never twitching. Steve Ely's poem, or its footnote... Talks of an eel fishery at Ullaskulf, but we knew nothing of this, and had Mam known that we were likely to run into one of these mysterious and dirty creatures, that would have put paid to fishing straight off. Though the train was always packed, I don't remember seeing any other fishermen by the river. Perhaps Dad was fishing in the wrong place and was too shy to ask. But these few visits were enough to stamp this patch of South Yorkshire as almost uniquely dismal. It has its historical connections. Towton, the decisive battle of the Wars of the Roses, is not far away. A few years later at school, I would learn that Kaywood Castle, now owned by the Landmark Trust, was where Cardinal Woolsey was staying before he was taken back to Leicester, disgrace and death. 8th of November Watch the slimmed-down service from the Cenotaph, with her HMQ keeping a beady eye on the revamped choreography. I'm distracted, though, just as the ceremony is starting, when Rupert sees a fox in the garden. It's a tiny garden and has walls, without that making it a walled garden, but with no obvious means of access for foxes. Fast asleep, the only sign of life, the occasional twitching of an ear... Maybe it's the distant gun salute that wakes her, I think it's a vixen, but she reveals herself as plump and well-fed, possibly pregnant. She hangs around for a bit, shoving her white nose through the trellis on top of the wall before disappearing next door. Meanwhile, the wreath-laying has started, which I'm always impressed by. In the unlikely event of my being asked to lay a wreath at the cenotaph, I'd have to decline, if only because I couldn't walk the few steps backwards it requires. Not the least of the Queen's achievements is that she can still do this in her nineties. 26th of November A new biography of Graham Greene, not read like I have to confess most of his work. I've been put off by the Catholicism showing through and his frequent, rare interviews. A darling of the Sunday papers in the 1960s, he was always said to be retiring, while in fact being avid for publicity. Any misgivings I had was confirmed the only time I met him in 1977. I had a play running in the West End, The Old Country, with Alec Guinness. Wordy, I think it now, and thin on plot, it was an account of a foreign office defector, now living in Soviet Russia, who was being tempted home, possibly to face the music. It had good reviews, though journalists and even some critics persisted in taking Hillary the spy to represent or be based on Kim Philby. This had never been my intention, with Orden more the model, and exile the subject, though the misconception doubtless did the box office no harm. In the course of the run, various luminaries came round after the show to see Alec Guinness, with him telling me to come myself one night as Graham Green would be in the audience. I duly turned up, but remembered little of the conversation. There wasn't much conversation to remember. My abiding memory only that Green's was the limpest hand I'd ever shaken. Nor did he say a word about the play, for or against. It may be that as a friend and persistent advocate of Philby's, he had, like some of the newspapers, misidentified Alec as Philby. Whatever it was, I thought it was a graceless performance. However, a few nights later, another visitor wiped away the memory. This was Coral Brown, funny, gossipy, and who'd even liked the play relating it to her own experiences in Moscow where she'd met Guy Burgess and giving me, ready-plotted, another play in An Englishman Abroad. 1st of December A card from a friend, Paul Fincham, drawing my attention to a passage in Kilbert's diary, which I thought I'd read. New Year's Day, 1882 I went to London by the midday mail, reached twenty-three Gloucester Crescent at three o'clock. Katie ran down to open the door, prettier than ever. The monk was gracious and he came forward with a smile and an embrace. The baby Mary is charming, blue eyes and fat rosy cheeks. Quite a window. She will be very pretty. With its innocent delight in little girls, these were Kilbert's nieces, It's a characteristic passage from the young Victorian clergyman's diaries, but unless the street numbers have changed, and I don't think they have, 23 Gloucester Crescent is my sometime house, and the home too of the lady in the van, who wouldn't have liked the children at all. Mark Bostridge tells me that Kilvert must have been visiting his younger sister, Emily Window, and her family. It's nice to think that Kilvert once called at the house and he joins a list of visitors that includes Barbara Streisand, Kenneth Williams, John Gilgood, Vincent Price, Morrissey, to which can now be added the name of the Reverend Francis Kilvert. 9th of December I'm sorry that this year's diary dwells so much on my physical incapacity. Farewell to the bike has to some extent meant farewell to the health that went with it, and my life is increasingly medicated. I'm blessed in my passage through the therapeutic jungle by Louise, who's an ideal pharmacist, cheerful, funny and unbegrudging. It's a busy pharmacy in Camden Town, with its quota of recovering addicts and ancients like myself to whom Louise dispenses not merely medicaments but much-needed good cheer. I'm happy to acknowledge the part she plays in my well-being. I must cost the NHS a fortune, and I'm glad that through talking heads we were able to repay some of that, if only a little. Johnson never fails to call it our NHS, though this offers no assurance that he won't sell it out but one hopes that now he's lost his chum across the water. There may be less of that. 15th of December. There were those in 1914 who believed that war was just what was needed, as a cleanser and a salutary shock. England would be the better for it. And as we wait for the result of the final Brexit talks, the airs of these fools are still with us. 24th of December In the late afternoon, we watch carols from Kings, which isn't the customary festival of Nine Lessons and carols, perhaps because of Covid, or it may be that the BBC or even Kings has got nervous about overdoing religion. The service used to have a dramatic shape, beginning with Isaiah and ending with the Nativity and St John. Now, or today anyway, No nine lessons, but an anthology of devotional stuff, well-meant, but telling no tale. This may be to do with the enforced absence of the congregation, who normally are allowed to join in for the more rousing carols. Christmas is a time for repetition, the repetition part of the ritual. The congregation isn't bored with Christmas, only the programme-makers. 31st of December My year ends when Rupert takes me up to one of the health centres in Camden which has been kitted out as a vaccination centre. Though neither of us knows quite where it is we realise we must be getting close from the number of 80-year-olds and carers making their way off the Kentish Town Road all on the same errand. Rupert isn't allowed in and I go fairly briskly through a series of waiting rooms before reaching the vaccination room. It's busy, but quiet, and notable considering the presence of so many aged patients for the absence of chuntering. Everyone, not surprisingly, seems in good humour. My only complaint is that since I'm isolating with my partner, it would seem sensible to vaccinate him too. But then... Not all the staff at the centre have been vaccinated either. 18th of January 2021 I've worn pretty much the same outfit since this business began, only varying it as the weather's got colder to put on a thicker pullover. This has something to do with not yielding to circumstance and reminds me of fellow conscripts on the Russian course during my national service in 1953. It was a very relaxed unit, and we did not have to wear uniform except on ceremonial occasions, and were issued with official civilian clothes, though one could wear one's own choice of outfit. One colleague refused this better option and insisted on wearing the army issue kit, reasoning that to wear one's own clothes was to give the military something, the wear and tear on the clothes, to which it was not entitled. The army civvies were ill-fitting, itchy and unbecoming and came from a depot at Woking. A Woking suit, no smoking suit was one of the cabaret turns we did at the time. Fourth of February Slightly wish I'd lightened my chuntering about arthritis with a reminiscence of my great-uncle Norris, included in an earlier memoir, but no worse for that. Uncle Norris was, I think, Grandpa Peel's brother, and was a wine and spirit merchant by profession. He ended his days in Stafford House, an old people's home in Halifax, but very cheerfully, as he was convinced, and never missed an opportunity of telling you, that he was about to become a millionaire. Why? Because he, Norris Peel, had discovered the cure for arthritis, and once this was made known, an arthritis foundation in America would make over to him their entire funding. The cure consisted in cutting off the feet of one's socks and wearing them as anklets. This is what Uncle Norris had done, and he never had arthritis, so it must be a cure. He had written to many of the notables of the day to tell them the good news. A mixed bag. Winston Churchill... Semperini, Wilfred Pickles, Valdunican, and he would show you a sheaf of their acknowledgements. He's batchy, Dad would say, meaning he's balmy, but it certainly kept him happy. 27th of February. The hair is getting to be a problem. As children, my brother and I had our hair cut at Mr. Shaw's, the barber on Armley Moor Top in Leeds. It was a wearisome business, after school when the shop was always full. Mr Shaw, who was bald, never condescended to talk to us children, who in any case were wrapped in everybody's and picture post, and even the occasional lilliput. When we lived in Headingley, it was Mr Oddy on Shire Oak Street, another bald and taciturn fellow, but with classier magazines, in particular Britannia and Eve notable for illustrations of bare-breasted ladies driving chariots in the genteel porn that was the speciality of F. Matania. My dad had his hair cut on the same parade as his butcher's shop in Meanwood, though never to the satisfaction of my mother, who claimed he came home looking like a scraped cock. She meant a plucked fowl, but had no thought of being misunderstood. Today's barber is my partner, Rupert Thomas, who, while professing to admire my abundant locks, manages to make me look like a blonde Hitler. He was also wondering if he could save the offcuts in case they might find a market on eBay. 11th of March It should not be forgotten that with his customary foresight and good judgment one of the first acts of the current Prime Minister was to hasten to the side of President Trump, whom he then shipped across the Atlantic to meet Her Majesty the Queen, and that it was the now much abused Speaker John Bercow who ruled out any thought of Trump addressing a joint session of Parliament. His reward was to be refused the customary peerage on retirement by the Prime Minister who happily doled out peerages to umpteen millionaires, all of them donors to the Tory party. And so we go on. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.